Welcome to Single-Minded Conversations. That is my call-in show. I'm Jesse Single. I'm a journalist and a podcaster and an author and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I'm streaming this from Asheville, North Carolina on the second like of a road trip. It is very beautiful here and it feels like uh, freeing and normal to be able to travel to an unfamiliar city and just wander around, which is one of my favorite things to do, which I hadn't really been able to do uh, since COVID started. So happy to be here. Uh, Ate some very good food. Uh, quick housekeeping before we begin. If you're new to the show, you might want to check out my back catalog. I did a great interview with the critic Alice Gribben about what she calls the empathy racket or the idea that like art, a really important purpose of art is to promote empathy. Uh, I think it's worth a listen. Uh, when I say great, I mean her insights were great. I'm not sure my questions were great. Uh, and then if you're in- interested in the debate over youth gender dysphoria treatment, you might like another recent episode I did on the upcoming uh, WPATH standards of care version eight that just gets into the controversy over basically how to help kids with gender dysphoria, when they should go on puberty blockers and hormones, etc. And then I've got one upcoming episode you might want to put on your calendar. That is on Tuesday, December 14th at 6 p.m. Eastern uh, with Batya Ungar Sargon about her book. Uh, and her book is about basically how journalism became a field for rich kids and why that matters and why it should concern us. So uh, once I post this episode tomorrow, I'll make sure links to all those episodes are there and uh, you should check them out. Okay, the main thing I'm going to do tonight is just take your calls and talk about whatever you want for about 35 minutes or so. It'll, it'll depend how many uh, how many calls there are. So feel free to get in the queue now if you already know what, what you want to ask me. Uh, but before I do, I just want to go on a very brief little spiel Um a bit earlier tonight, I saw a thread by Raphael Bob Waksberg. He's the creator of the Netflix show BoJack Horseman. Might be one of my top five favorite shows of all time. I just think it's completely brilliant, and you should check it out uh, if you haven't. Um, I think he has some beliefs on on free speechy stuff that are different from mine, and they were on display in a tweet storm he did, I think, a couple days ago. I'll just read the main tweet, and then I just want to basically respond to it a little bit. Still, uh, quote, Still mystified that apparently Dave Chappelle's deal is that he says whatever he wants and Netflix just has to air it unedited. Is that normal for comedians? Because Netflix once asked me to change a joke because they were worried it might upset David Fincher. So weirdly, if you read the whole thread all the way to the bottom, you'll see at the very end he responds to a question from a reader uh, basically saying he's not sure why Netflix nixed the joke and he thinks it might have just been because they didn't think it was funny. So I, I don't think he actually is positive Netflix uh, nixed the joke because it offended David Fincher. Either way, it's a long tweet storm. You should read it. Uh, and in the process of making his point, he raises some money for Trans Lifeline. That's certainly better than doing a tweet storm that doesn't raise money for charity. But this just really jumped off the screen at me because I've seen a lot of journalists and artists and other creative types in recent years speak out loudly in favor of of giant corporate entities being able to exert more control over what creative types can say. And I think that's really weird and bad and that we would have considered it unusual not too long ago. Um, so just on the basic, fact, basic facts here, I should say that I think it's very unlikely Raphael, Raphael Bob Waksberg is actually confused. Like, surely he knows that rightly or wrongly different standards apply to artists at different levels of stardom. Because Dave Chappelle is a top-tier superstar, he can likely command whatever terms he wants. And, you know, it seems quite unlikely that uh, Chappelle would sign a deal where corporate suits would, would exert any meaningful degree of control over his act, and he shouldn't want them to. But what... 
Bob Waksberg is expressing here is actually a really, really common belief among famous creative types, or at least the ones who sound off on these issues online. And I think it can only really stem from living and working in circles where no one really disagrees with anyone and where it's like very clear what are the right and what are the wrong views and where you're in a cocoon of like-minded individuals that doesn't necessarily represent the country as a whole. If that weren't the case, uh, he would probably realize that ultimately it's not really in his interest to want to give more power to corporations to control his or any other artist's output, even if it feels righteous in the case of Dave Chappelle. Zooming out from Bob Waksberg a little bit, this is something I've just had a lot of trouble understanding. Um, it, it's also journalists you see often calling for tech platforms to exert a heavier hand with regard to user content. Uh, and, you know, everything from what they call hate speech to COVID misinformation. And I just find this to be a really illiberal and self-defeating point of view. Uh, I mean, if you're a journalist, do you really trust whoever it is at Twitter who makes these calls? And uh, it's someone who is operating at the behest of a $37 billion company behind several layers of secrecy and, and immune from any sort of accountability whatsoever. Do you really trust this person to make the right calls? Uh, do you trust them to do so forever? What if, God forbid, you yourself decide to take on a controversial subject in your own reporting? Are you confident Twitter won't clamp down on you for that? I just find this to be so short-sighted and, and again, illiberal. Uh, one last point I wanted to note here about Raphael Bob Waksberg is that I did like note some hubris in this one other thing he said. This is a quote. For a comedian who famously walked away from his hit TV show because he was worried he was making things worse, that's capitalized, it's remarkable how many of his fans and collaborators believe comedians have no responsibility to not make things worse. Again, capitalized. I just think that really sums up. I, I think this guy, like a lot of people in his camp seeking more corporate censorship over art and media, views himself as having like such a confident understanding of what makes things better, makes things worse, you know, with capital letters, that he thinks the politics of him and his friends should prevail in the decision-making of giant unaccountable tech companies. And I think that really uh, tells you everything you need to know. And it's frustrating and short-sighting, short-sighted. I keep using that word. All right. I'm going to take my first caller in Morton. Unmute yourself and uh, speak to me. Hi. Can you hear me? Hello. I can. I, the, I don't, I don't have a question. I just wanted to add to this because I'm sort of in the middle of a like personal crisis myself of seeing it play out in front of me in the publishing industry, there is, there really is what you've referred to as an epistemic closure. Uh, and the people that I've encountered in my case, I have to be very vague on this point, but I've seen people who are responsible for acquiring books and contributing to the conversations around acquiring books. Uh, essentially they, they're mostly liberal uh, I can't name a single person I know in one of these acquiring roles who could be identified as anything but liberal. But they're, uh, you know, they're acquiring books that are across the political spectrum, um, which means that they sort of have a strange responsibility. There are people from one side of the political spectrum who are now responsible for curating the content of all of the spectrum. Right. Right. Uh, and one of the one of the things uh, that's become difficult in recent years, and of course, since 2020, especially, is the obvious sense among a lot of the coworkers that they don't want that half <laughs> of the audience. 
like uh, anyone right to, from right of center from their point of view, basically. Yeah, they don't. And the thing that's, I mean, one of the things that dro- drives me a little bit nutty about this is they are very fortunate in a sense because they can, they, they have been placed in a position where they can control that content to some degree, um, but they can't completely cut it off. And they don't seem to realize that. I think that there seems to be delusion on their part that eventually they'll just stave off the conservative opinions until it's nothing but liberal ones. And I find it absurd, especially quite frankly, and this is something that is definitely like, I've, I've been thinking about this and I'm, I'm not sure how I feel about it, but there's no question that they have control over this dialogue. Um, they do have the opportunity to steer the conservative opinions in, the, the, in whatever they deem to be the most reasonable direction, right? So whether or not they deserve this power, they could at least use it to create a future that is more amenable to a kind of conservatism that they can live with. But instead of... You mean they could publish books by sort of like saying or yes, never Trump exa- conservatives exactly. if they wanted they could to? Go full yeah. dispatch, right? If they wanted to, but rather than recognizing that as an opportunity, they really do seem to think that they're going to, they're just going to make it so that they slowly disappear. And it's such an unrealistic viewpoint. But I do think, uh, to your point about where they're coming from and why they feel this way, I think they have an unprecedented kind of bubble. I think that everyone's always existed in some kind of bubble. But I think the way yeah. that social media works and the way that media works, you can curate almost every aspect of your uh, your lifestyle. And I need to point out there's this there's a terrific right. book by Robert Talese called Overdoing Democracy that points out something that a lot of us are uh, experiencing in our lives, which is that like even the difference between Target and Walmart, right? Like <laughs> Target and Walmart obviously have taken sides to some degree. <laughs> like you go there and they sort of like are edging you one way or the other, or at least they're appealing to one side or another. There's a sense of a politicization of every space that you move in. The culture wars are just Yeah, yeah. And overdoing democracy, which I really recommend, despite the fact it's like the most, it's very academic, uh, and, but it's pretty brief. And I think the points are salient, which are that, if you politicize everything, it makes pol- politics actually become impossible. Um, but I think that more and yeah. more people, my, my personal feeling about it is that it, it's less about politics. It's not about doing politics. These aren't people who are engaged in politics. These are people for whom politics is a kind of a social environment. It's a lifestyle. It's a purpose. But it is everything but the concrete um, act of being involved in politics. It's not civic engagement. Um, that's, yeah, Yeah. that is all I got, but that's what I just wanted to add because I hear (laughs) you. No, no, a couple, I mean, a couple things. One is if you want to um, email me, I'd be curious to hear whatever you can share about your situation. I understand you want to talk about it publicly, but I hear a lot of back channel stories like that. I think the, the most relevant one here is I know an editor at a publication. I think anyone who's familiar with me has heard of this publication. It was an editorial uh, meeting to try to figure out what this publication was going to run. And either he or someone, I forget the specifics, either this editor I know or someone suggested a pitch from a speaker who is, um, you know, more or less opposed to abortion. And another editor staffer said, well, we wouldn't run a speech from a pro Nazi. We wouldn't run an article by a pro Nazi person. And I mean, talk about a bubble. Like I'm, I'm in favor of what I would call reproductive rights, but a very large yeah. chunk of the country feels differently. And the idea that you can't even run anything from, um, anyway, uh, shoot me an email if, if you can tell me more about that, but no pressure whatsoever. And thank you for the call. We only have two people in the queue. So if more people want to get in, you will make the show better. Chewy, how is it going? 
Hey, Jesse. It's going okay. I'm getting over a cold, and I'll probably cough a couple times. I was out with my friend, and he has a baby, and baby germs are strong, man. <laughs> um, oh, God, they're crazy. So I've um, heard. So kind of actually um, uh, jumping off a little bit, I, I guess, of what the, the last caller said, and also something I was thinking, I, I as I was heard, like listening to your, your lead-up in, into this show, I was thinking about like my formative experience of being sort of like online understanding sort of like free speech, you know, uh, discussions and, and rights and whatnot was like when I got into college in about 2002. And that was a time where like my opinions were very much on the outside. My, you know, like being queer in a very small town in, in, in Idaho, um, then going to college, very small place. And like always understanding that like all the things that I might want to tell other people shouldn't be allowed to be said. Uh, would come back to bite me and in fact were existed in the first place right um like everything that can be used against the people i dislike will and was at that time used against me and so like it never made sense to me um to rail against it but (laughs) the part the only part that i wanted to um think about a little bit differently on 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 the other side of what the, the the comedian that you were talking about is is this at the aspect of um social media is already making choices through its algorithm, right? Um, It's not like it is a debate between just um, social media should take the choices that I want or it should make no choices. The reality is that social media already makes choices through its algorithm about what to show you. And there's almost a piece in which I want to think about what is what is I don't know what is not not reasonable, fair. Like, if if an algorithm is already making choices, how do we yeah. then think about what the comedian is that that you're talking about is asking for? To me, I still come down to like, well, you shouldn't have these people make the choices for you because it can always be used against you, and it will in the future. But if the algorithms are already making choices, you know, if we want to kind of steel man that, right? What's the the sort of the yeah. perspective that we think about that. No, I'm, I, I'm with you, and I, I, I think it, people sometimes fall into this idea in much the same way they think there can be like value-free science or that any like type of inquiry right. can be free of ideology. They think that there's some world in which like social media is just sort of like totally raw and unfiltered. And I think any big social media platform, there's some filtering. But I do think in this case, he seemed to be pretty clearly saying the Netflix executives or diversity committee or whatever should basically just be exerting control over what Chappelle can say or doesn't say, which to me, that's more the, the deep platforming conversation, which is a little bit different from the um, the question of like exactly how the algorithms should work, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. okay. Cool. Yep. Thanks, Joey. Just losing him there at the end. Uh, Jacob, what's up? Hey, uh, good evening. One thing I actually wanted to bring up is people self-censoring or choosing to alter their own language rather than actually have to having to deal with censorship coming from, you know, corporate execs. Like, just to flag one thing I noticed, there's a really trashy Netflix reality show called Selling Sunset, which is about a real estate brokerage that sells over-the-top homes, mostly around the L.A. area, Hollywood, and other 
neighborhoods. And uh, in the new season that just came out the other day, the brokers have started referring to the lar- largest bedroom in a home as the owner suite or the principal suite, when, which you previously would have called a master suite. The master suite, right? Yeah. And uh, obviously in recent years, the term master has come under fire from many on the left and is being retired by many on the left because of its connotations of slavery. I think most prominently at Yale, where you had like these dorm supervisor people types that were called like house masters or residential college masters after some controversy there. And I happen to know a few people who are in the real estate space. And I asked them if they were also, if they, if they had stopped using master bedroom when they were describing a home to a client, or if they were hearing that from other real estate brokers, they knew and none of them were familiar with that. So like that kind of struck me as a kind of thing that you'd expect to see coming out of Hollywood was almost people looking to change their own vocabulary because not of not necessarily actual censorship, but even just getting ahead of it. Yeah, no, I, I find that interesting. I, I find I often don't get as um, upset about those debates, except to the extent that I think there's like, I, I will always go back to the sort of hidden class elements of everything. And I do think there's like this thing where the rules seem to change consistently. And every week there's a new, word you are or aren't supposed to use. And I think the only way to stay on top of that is to have the right level of education and the right level of being tuned in to liberal institutions where you you often need at least a college degree to really have access to them. So I, I think um you know a lot of this stuff that is supposedly about social justice is really about etiquette at root and about ever changing and ever more elaborate codes of etiquette. And and this is, you know, something human society has always had. It is often a concern of, of more upper class people. So I often fail to understand exactly like in many of these cases, it's just like words can mean different things in other contexts. And I think everyone knows that. And you almost have to pretend not to know that there are obviously exceptions. Like I don't, I don't think anything should be named after Confederate here. I just don't like stuff like that to me is different, but like master hard drive or slave or whatever they could. I don't know. I, anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm basically with you on this stuff. Uh, anything else? No, I, I just thought that was an interesting sort of perspective on this topic, yeah. though not quite exactly within that frame. Yeah, thank you, Jacob. I appreciate it. And uh, as I've said before, I like your uh, your profile photo. <laughs> Declan, Declan, I might look like your profile photo even more. It's one of the best uh, Simpson stills. What's up? Um, uh, thanks, uh, Jesse. Um, yeah, um, I'm being a little bit careful about what I, I say here because I, I work in a creative publishing industry and um i've noticed this kind of homogenous kind of approach where you can tell certain types of stories and if someone kind of goes outside of you know if their views are seen in some way or they're telling the wrong type of stories they kind of run to the the publisher and i think it's kind of a similar thing with the tech companies because they're all publishers now um yeah and you can just it's kind of like you can enforce your own views by silencing out and you know i'm not trying to make a free speech argument necessarily it's just that you know you can go to the to your to mammy and daddy to kind of stop them from doing the horrible thing effectively and um and i don't understand it because like as someone who works in creative field i constantly see these arguments about how we should be stopped <laughs> telling the stories that we're trying to tell um i i just i just feel like the word it, it like i'm going mad sometimes because they're always just arguing against their own interest uh, as if that's as if it's not going to bite them in the ass 
Can, can I ask you, do you work in the States or Ireland or something um, else? I, I, I'm, I work in Ireland, but it's for, I work, say, it's American publishing. Okay, which, and I assume the craziness is centered, it sounds, I bet it's centered in American publishing. Uh, yeah, but I mean, but I mean, it's leaked into the UK as well. Gotcha. Um, yeah, I, I, the, the running, <laughs> the running to mom and dad thing, I, I find so weird and I find it so, um, I don't want to say authoritarian. It's not, it's not a dictatorship, but it is the opposite of being anti-authoritarian. Like, I, I don't know, to me growing up, being on the left meant a certain sense of a middle finger to authority. And I remember being completely entranced by the South Park movie, which started with a two and a half minute song called Uncle Fucker, just offensive for the sake of offensive and for the sake of celebrating transgression and, and watching that get sort of sucked out of the mainstream left has been really disturbing. And I would just add some of the stories in publishing that haven't come out are so crazy that people would think I was making them up if I could tell them. I, I don't want to act like I'm sitting on hundreds of them, but a few in particular of just the most reactionary behavior on the part of publishers. Uh, it's just, people are very scared. And what's weird and tell me if you agree is I, I think they're often scared about offending what five percent of potential readers? Ten? These these aren't widely held mores or views, right? Yeah, I, I, it's something I've been thinking about recently. Is um, are us creative types? Are we kind of making work for other creative types to pat us on the back? <laughs> yeah, rather than rather than making you know like getting awards or you know kudos on Twitter. I, I, I mean, I think a lot of it has been the last five years of people building up their brands online as well, where they're talking to these echo chambers um, as part of it. But, but are we making work for each other or for an audience? And, you know, I, it's kind of when I get out of my little kind of Twitter, you know, online bubble and I talk to people who aren't in that, they don't care about any of this stuff. They're not paying attention. They're just buying stuff that appeals to them. They're not, I think, what was it? It's, it's something like, yeah. it's like 10, if you're at best 10% of your online um, uh, persona or whatever, it, like nobody, nobody's actually. It's like ten percent actually buy your work, so you're effectively advertising to yeah. other creatives, you know. And in the meantime, not really talking to the people who actually buy your work. The, the only thing I'd add to that, and and I I really appreciate the call, is that um, in media, in journal, uh, in journalism, in creative fields, in academia, especially like philosophy and psychology, which I'm most familiar with, there's this like ve- a real crabs in a barrel type of dynamic where like Twitter is just full of people sort of hanging on to the bottom rung of these fields uh, who don't really make a living and they are very angry. And I do think sometimes they use social justice speak just to try to take down more successful people or try to exert some control given that they don't have a lot of control. And I don't know. I, I wish we lived in a world where we could fund more art and more philosophy and more media, but I, I do think that's maybe part of the dynamic here. Yeah, and, and uh, I, I won't uh, jump up the room anymore, but um, I'm just wondering, do you think in, say, your field or other or, or creative writing fields, what have you, is it going to come to a point where people might actually realize, you know, is it the, like, I don't know, is the a really beloved figure you know um going to be shut down and then then everyone's going to realize that once it's not once it's a person that right. they agree with is that going to be when they finally realize the dangers yeah journalism's already getting better i mean I, i've mentioned a few times on the show the times hiring john mcwarder which is a sign they realize they can't just produce the same shit over and over again um and all the all the funding <laughs> to the extent journalism has any funding it's venture capital flowing into stuff like this and and toward 
I don't know, figures like me and Katie Herzog, I mean, we're very lucky and this might not last. It might be a bubble, but I, I do think things are improving overall. Maybe book publishing will be a little bit slower because maybe it's crazier. Or there's different incentives that I don't understand as well, but I, I see some reason for hope overall. I hope so. Thank, thank you, Declan. Next up is Hugh. Hey. Uh, also, also Irish. Hey, so you've got a bit of an overly homogenous. Uh, I, I put up the sign saying no Irish people, and all you guys ignored it. <laughs> um, so this, this is like a little bit off topic compared to the rest, but I think I think that's okay. Um, this is kind of regarding like the the Black Lives Matter statement um, with the Jussie Smollett case, where they kind of like, yeah. expressed a lot of things. And this might be a little bit rambling, but I, basically, like last year during the protests, you know, which obviously most people supported, including me. Um, it wasn't clear to me whether when people were like Black Lives Matter, they were supporting the actual organization or the general concept. You know, it's just kind of like word speak yeah. or whatever. Um, and like I, I went on their website and I was like, some of these views are quite extreme. Um, and obviously one of the ones that people kind of debate is like this like concept of abolish the police. Um, and people are like, well, it doesn't really mean that. And like this, particularly libertarians are like, you know, it means more diverse things. But but like the messaging in, in this statement is like, in our commitment to abolition, we can never believe police, you know, it's a redeemable institution. Like that's quite clear that the, 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 at least some of the people at Black Lives Matter do, do believe this kind of like, basically like extreme ACAB view of the police. Yeah. Um, and that they, whether it's like this audience capture towards the like social justice warriors who want to scream slave catcher at police, like that's essentially what they're putting out. And, like while while these are all like concepts that aren't exactly the same, like in the majority of the public's minds, things like critical race theory, social justice, Marxism, have been wrapped up in a way that this is probably the preeminent organization for all of these concepts to the average person. And yeah. If you compare, if you compare Christopher Rufo, who's like probably the most effective messenger, whether you like him or not, since like Nigel Farage on a single issue you know, this is going to present a fucking disaster for anyone who's in any way trying to defend any of those things. If an organization that, you know, is basically the, the main public face of, of all these, like obviously academics will say like, that's not really this, that's not really that, but, but that doesn't really matter at the end of the day when everybody knows that Black Lives Matter is the main, is the main representation of what people think of with these things. Um, and I was just wondering if you kind of had any thoughts on yeah. this or, you know, yeah, no, I, I feel like you, you hacked my Google Drive because I was actually three hours ago working on a newsletter about this. Um, first of all, Zed Jelani has a good piece, piece in Persuasion about how progressive groups need to maintain their focus. Um, the example I had in mind was until, I don't know, a year or two ago, the main Black Lives Matter site had a thing on their family about disrupting the traditional nuclear family. And it just has nothing to do with their main worthy goal of of making policing better. I mean, I guess you're saying they're giving mixed messages there and that there's some abolitionist sentiment, but you know, when Black Lives Matter was at its peak and enjoyed very good approval ratings, that was because I think most people understand policing needs some reform, but the, a lot of these groups just have a trouble where this issue where um, they let like the radicals sometimes speak for the group and then conservatives who, who might be hostile to the whole group's goals will endlessly highlight that. They'll say, look at these crazies over there. There's just such a lack of messaging discipline. And the Jussie Smollett thing was just an incredible example of that because who, who thinks that? Who, who thinks that uh, whatever you think of the Chicago Police Department, which has a very checkered and abusive pa- past, 
Jesse Smollett is one of the few people who I would trust less than the Chicago Police Department because he's a crazy liar. Um, I think this stuff is really damaging, and I also just think politically, like there's a, it's almost like you're trying to reduce the size of your coalition because the the subset of Americans who have some problem with policing and think it should be reformed in some way, some way ranges from rich to poor, every possible color. It's it's could be a very diverse coalition and. There's been the few um, useful examples of sort of left-right cooperation in recent years have sometimes had to do with police reform. So um, I think I'm disagreeing with you at this point, but I just think it's a really it's really frustrating that this stuff keeps happening. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and like I guess yeah, like the the version of this that that I think most people kind of support is you know a lot of extra police training, and then maybe you know how to what extent it's possible is uncertain, but like you know de-escalation or other people who are not necessarily police officers who are better equipped to it but even that is like quite even when like i've spoken like one of my one of the guys i work with his dad's like a well-known libertarian professor or something and you know he's like oh well it means this that and the other and it's like have they tried this anywhere like is there that much evidence that this is highly successful it's like that's not that clear to me and and then just kind of just to, to yeah. finalize the point it's like with these organizations like you know with the aclu and whatnot it's easy to say like okay that's just a twitter person that's just the person running their twitter who does this or says this and it's you know that's that's mission creep that, that shouldn't happen but it's just a twitter account but but like this isn't that like this is on their website this is like essentially an official statement yeah well i mean with the aclu and, and thank you very much for the call here but the aclu will frequently go against its own stated values including in the case of kyle rittenhouse where they're complaining a guy who probably should have been acquitted was acquitted i mean there's just there's no principles and i think it's frustrating okay thank you Hugh. Yeah. <laughs> i'm just like sigh, i feel like i'm <laughs> sighing a lot Sorry. No, no, no. I appreciate the call. It was a good call. Jack, what is up? Hey, what's going on, Jesse? Um, so hey, I have Jack. a quick question for you about kind of the politicization of the media. Um, I think it's it's fair to say, and this kind of gets back to your the article that you were mentioning by Wesley Lowry on the latest pod, but I think the media has kind of become political in a few different ways recently. I mean, one is it's kind of self-politicizing through being more open about not necessarily taking a neutral ideological position. Two, there's been an effort from Trump and other Republicans to kind of paint the media as part of the Democratic apparatus. And I think three, you know, just with Twitter and other technology, it's very transparent to everyone now that the media simply isn't objective and that journalists are people with opinions and beliefs and values, et cetera. But my question is, in this kind of environment where there seems to be a blurring between, you know, politics and media and partisanship and, and media, how do you think journalists and, uh, and people working in media should act in consideration of the fact that they may be having some kind of political impact? You know, they may get tied in with Democrats based on what they say or don't say. And yeah. then alternatively... Do you have any thoughts on how you think political parties, specifically the Democratic Party, should act when they have no control over what's, you know, in the New York Times op-ed section? But what, you know, if an article there called Abolish the Police is written, that may actually come back on Democrats politically. Yeah, I mean, this is all really complicated. I, I, I think as a journalist, I think it's good that we no longer think, mostly think journalists are just these like objective robots who don't have their own views. And I think there's certain elements of that old view that was unrealistic. I, I just think there was, 
I wish there was a better understanding on the part of journalists that like bias affects everybody and that it isn't just right-wing news outlets capable of bias or perpetuating bias. And I think especially when we're writing stories that reinforce uh, the beliefs we hold, that's when we need to have our guard up the most. And I mean, perhaps most importantly, and this ties into some of the Wesley Lowry stuff, like you, if you're covering an organization you're sympathetic of toward, um, you need to be skeptical. You're not, your job is not to do PR for this organization. Even if it's an organization, if it's an organization whose goals you agree with, like your, your job is to be skeptical and to be critical and to add facts and nuance and context to the world. If you were just going to write stuff, supporting an organization, you should maybe just go into PR where there's more jobs and they're more lucrative. So I, I just, I found like a real, uh, I'm not that old, but especially among younger journalists, just a real misunderstanding of what like the mission of our craft is. And I, I find that really frustrating. Was that, was that sort of what you were going for? Yeah, I think so. I guess the, the one other part is, is now maybe flipping the lens and going to the political side of things. I think that, you know, essentially in some way, I just think Democrats get held to account for what goes on on CNN or in the pages of the New York yes. Times. And it's just an interesting political problem because i don't know that there's any mechanism of kind of message control across broad liberal institutions but i think it can be the case that the democratic party can be hurt by those things even if it's completely beyond their control and i don't know that they you know the party may wish to moderate its message like you know certainly i, I think that would be biden's preference but I, it's just it's a weird ecosystem where they kind of reap the cost but they don't have the the control and i'm wondering if you have any thoughts on kind of the politics or media. Yeah. I mean, they don't, they don't have a lot of control over what right-wing media says and right-wing media will always um, portray them as crazy, but you can just think of this, some of the specific unforced errors, like Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren teaming up with a group called black Wimix in four W L M X N. I mean, it's just literally a word that no one has heard and no one knows how to pronounce. And the only person only people who could possibly think that's a good idea are, are people from a very certain socioeconomic set that is not like the median Democratic voter. So I don't think I have a good answer for you other than that. Like there's some very obvious instances of stuff they just shouldn't do. Uh, but I got to think about that more. Uh, thank you for the call, though, Jack. Andrew, you are next. Hey, Jesse. Good evening. Um, hey. So I saw the original tweet that kicked this off. And uh, I was wondering what your thoughts are on how you kind of balance this problem where you have to have moderation in place of some sort um, because human attention is finite and people will post things that are blatantly illegal. But yeah. it seems like the only economic model to take care of that is to give like, you know, a 24-year-old Twitter employee like the divine right of a king to silence <laughs> yeah. anyone who disagrees with them. Um, and do you think that like there's any workable scheme where we can democratize that power like you know if you have like a i know this would be annoying to everyone but if we like elected moderators um as twitter users or if we had juries of twitter users so it's not just all huh. centrally powered within the so I, my my understanding is facebook did something similar where they have like sort of their equivalent of a supreme court and it's a fairly at least geographically diverse group of like experts of various sorts um i cannot claim to have thought this through enough to know what a good solution for twitter would be but i do think anything that 
makes the policies more in line just with the beliefs of a given country. Now that gets tricky because, you know, if it's, if it's China and, uh, 80 or 90% of people say they're in favor of the CCP should, should you then ban criticism? I mean, that's a weak example, but my point is democracy might uh, make some bad choices of its own, but, um, that's a really good question. I, I'd be curious to hear, uh, any anyone else's thoughts on that? I, I can't say I'm enough of an expert, but um, I got to think about it. Thank you. I just wanted to run that idea by. No, it, it, it seems to be that like that's the that's the solution we found again and again through history of how you govern large groups is you force them to make rules, and then police. Yeah, this top down stuff doesn't work at all. I know that, but um, yeah. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to, if I really feel like I'm not uh, equipped, I, I don't want to just make stuff up. But uh, thank you for the question. I'm going to think about it more. Oh. All right, we have one more person in the queue, Yasari. And if anyone else wants to ask a question, now is the time to jump in the queue, because otherwise I will likely wrap it up after this. Yasari, and what is up, my friend? How's it going, Jesse? Good. <sighs> Glad to hear it. So in talking, you're talking about um, publishing and journalism, one of the things that, that strikes me, and I don't mean to you know, go off in some conspiracy minded way of thinking about this, but, but it seems, it strikes me that, that much of this comes out of the sort of postmodern social construction view of society, right. And, and this fixation on semiotics and symbology so that it, if you actually believe that society is constructed from these sort of social outputs and therefore all the inequalities and all the injustices that we see are created by those social outputs, then, then aren't you going to turn your focus sort of um, wholeheartedly into that? Right. And Toward so, that stuff. You, and so yeah. it would be the, the areas in which those are most at issue, include education, publishing, the arts, journalism, right, that you would see it. And then you see this, this sort of attempt to top down control the discourse in the language, you know, via pronouns and neologisms like Latinx and all the various acronyms that we see. Um, and that if you actually believe that, if you actually believe that we could make society, we could perfect society if we only have the right terms to do it, then you have to believe that those of us who don't believe that, who, who believe that there are, you know, biological differences between the sexes and things like that, I mean, isn't that just sort of necessarily entail you viewing those of us with that more, I don't want to say realistic, I don't want to stack the deck in that way, but that more sort of traditional way of looking at the world that we are these backwards bigots who must be conquered by any means necessary. Yeah, I I got to think about that because I, I think what it comes down to is like a lot of human beings, regardless of their political ideology, are very into symbolism. And I think there is something unique about this left-wing approach where not all left-wingers, where if you could just get people to describe disabled people in the right way, life for disabled people would become much better. But right-wingers have all sorts of their own obsessions with symbolism. I mean, whether it's saluting the flag or being against flag burning or, or wanting you know, to fight bad words and rap music, although that was a bipartisan effort with like Tipper Gore and stuff. I guess, I mean, one thing I struggle with is whether there really are anything but surface level differences between left and right wing zealotry. And I, I have my own views on like, which is worse there. And I think there is something uniquely linguistically oriented about the left wing variant. But, but don't, I mean, don't you think right wingers have a history of often trying to control language themselves? Oh, no, absolutely. No, I, I, I agree yeah. with that. 
And I think there's absolutely a right wing viewpoint that that believes if we could only do away with leftism and criticisms of America, that the country would be that much stronger. It's just that all virtually all the 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 culturally the cultural organizations are completely dominated by the left at this point. Right. I mean, so so in that in that contested space it's a completely lopsided battle and those of us who are you know i've considered myself a liberal my entire you know as soon as i became politically conscious you know i mean i but you know to to a certain strain of the the left now i am i am you know indistinguishable from from the nazis yeah it's disturbing i mean i i would the language stuff drives me crazy because it's it's just so bougie and has often has so little to do with anything. So I, I just all I would say is people should focus on more material stuff. But I, it just seems like that's proceeding further and further into the distance. Maybe. Yeah, I have one one quick example on that that I I often think about is a few years ago there was a kerfuffle at the Harvard School of Law over the the crest for the school, and it had been like I guess the family crest of the guy who had originally endowed the school back in the 18th century. And he was a slave owner. And so there was this huge thing and we got to get rid of it. And so they did. And I'm just like flip it around, like in imagining if in the 1960s or 70s, some black students had gone to the administration and said, you know, we feel like there's discrimination here. We're not made to feel welcome, et cetera, et cetera. And and if the administration had come back and said, you know what, you're right. And what we're going to do is we're going to get rid of the crest. Like those black students would have been like, what the hell are you talking about? That's got nothing to do with anything. Right. Yeah. And then, well, I, I, and I think a lot of this, again, I, I keep repeating myself, but this is like a lot of it's centered in places like Harvard with just which with the most privileged people. And they get very into these arguments about symbolism and linguistics and etiquette. And it's just it's an endless circular firing squad, it feels like. Yeah. Thank you. Anyway, thank you. Sorry. Thanks, Jesse. Much appreciated. Carl, you will most likely be the last caller. Let's make this count. Hey, Jesse, thanks for all your work. Um, I have a question about sort of a more broad question about, you know, preference falsification and folks who don't find themselves on either kind of extreme 10% of the political spectrum who, you know, sort of go silent on Twitter and other spaces where maybe they have 50 followers and like the idea of saying what they really think, even in a measured and nuanced way like you do, is not going to pan out for them. Like, have you seen examples of ordinary people taking actions that are effective and, and sort of not like a huge negative ROI, I guess sort of like subscribing to your Substack is one thing that people might do, but otherwise than that, you know? Yes. That's the thing we should all do to fix society is subscribe to my, uh, my content. Yeah. You, you mean just to make sort of the, uh, for lack of a better term, silent majority, a little bit less silent. Yeah. I mean, right now I think the problem is it feels like it's not worth it. You know, I think yeah. I, I've just sort of gone silent because why bother? You know, Actually, I have a couple of very concrete uh, things you can do. One is editors might not editors at publications you care about might not read or respond to every email. But if you write them like a brief, crisp email explaining that you feel like your views are no longer being represented and that your views sit within the American mainstream, as I've mentioned earlier in this room, like I think there's some evidence that editors respond to something like stuff like that. And and don't try to find actual email addresses, which you can often do. Don't send it to just like contact at whatever. I, I think directly contacting sort of um, gatekeepers and decision makers, especially if you can do it in a coordinated way with other people who feel similarly, but who aren't 
speaking out online. Um, I think that's a very concrete thing you can do. And I think people will respond to that. Same goes with members of Congress. I mean, you know, I do think a relatively small number of notes or emails can, can shift people's view because think about who they hear from when they're on Twitter every day or when their aides are on Twitter every day. Um, So in my case, the, the stuff I've written that's most quote-unquote controversial, I, I've got an overwhelmingly positive feedback via private emails from people who would never chime in publicly on Twitter. And that makes a huge difference in reassuring me, like, whether or not I'm on the right track, there's a lot of people who feel that way. So I, I, I think that's the most concrete advice I'd give you. Does that make sense? Thank yeah. you, Carl. Um, all right. I think that's it. We got a good 45 minutes in. Um, I appreciate you guys spectating and contributing. And uh, this was, this was a good room. So the one thing I'd ask you to do, if you enjoy what I'm doing is to really spread the word about it. Like I've said before, those of us who are hosting shows on call and we're really starting from scratch. Uh, You know, some of us have fairly big platforms elsewhere, but we all started from zero followers, zero listeners on this. So tell other people about this, tell them about the show. Uh, and get them to subscribe. And you can always email me or send me a message if you have any ideas about how I can make the show better, any complaints, uh, any ideas for guests. We're going to get more and more guest-oriented as we go, although I, I think this works, just hopping on once in a while and taking 30 or 40 minutes of questions. But um, thank you guys again, and have a good night. Bye.